Hi, and welcome to Better Man Session 6. Uh, in this one, we're going to be looking at God and the good life. Just a little bit of recap first, though. We kind of looked at the three approaches to manhood we tend to see. The first is more of a worldly one, is we see a lot of guys falling into the myth of the self-made man, right? Where you believe that you have or should have what, what it takes to be a man, and so you see your manhood is coming from within. This is kind of self-defined, self-made. The second one we see is the image-conscious man. Um, this can actually be more problematic where your manhood copies culture and changing times and your sort of manhood comes from without or you are living for the approval of others, not from the approval you already have from God or you know, at least with the self-made man, the approval you make up. Um, but it's dependent on culture and, and it's about our image in, the people, in other people's eyes. Then third, there is hopefully what we become is the transcendent man. And that's seeing that God created us as men and called us to embrace timeless manhood responsibilities. And ultimately, this manhood comes from the Bible. So manhood and the good life. Uh, can the good life be defined? Well, a lot of research in social science is actually saying yes, that there's a lot of common threads as to what happiness is, what a good life actually looks like. Uh, those Harvard 75-year study of adult development, and it's helped us document and define what a good life that leads to joy and happiness is. Uh, there's other research studies. There's actually a great one um, from ABC News. They had a special called The Mystery of Happiness, Who Has It and How to Get It? And they largely confirmed what the good life looks like. Uh, here's what research generally says the good life isn't, even though this is often what the world tells us. It's not wealth and it's not possessions. Um, it's not good looks. It's not thrilling experiences and it's not personal achievements or Thing. Here's what's really interesting is 80% of millennials, according to some studies, have said that a major life goal is to get rich. This is incredibly evident when you see, uh, you know, stock um, trading with, with GameStop and, you know, even just Wall Street bets and the options betting there. Um, well, really, they're sort of like these get rich quick schemes that a lot of millennials, a lot of Gen Zers are really getting sucked into. Um, and that, that's sort of like the goal is, is really if I could just make it rich, if I could do as little work as possible uh, and then just have a, a ton of money to do nothing, then that's the good life. That'll make me happy. Uh, when asked how great it was to win the Super Bowl, Tom Brady replied, is this it? There's got to be more to life than this. And there is more to life than this. But here's what happens is we're often trying to seek these things, uh, thinking that they will bring us to happiness. I often um, phrase this, and, and, and I was going through this with our First King series of saying, if I only had blank, then I would be happy. What, what is that blank for you? Is it wealth and possessions or thrilling experiences? Or you know maybe there's something that'll actually make you feel secure in life. But often when we have that blank, as Tom Brady saw, we go, is this it? It's not enough. There's gotta be more to life than this. When we pursue happiness, it actually often leads us to becoming unhappy. Uh, it often robs us of our joy. I love how John Tyson puts it, um, that really the sum of all of this research on happiness and stuff like that is that happiness is a byproduct. Um, I would go so far as to say, you know, to include his definition of masculinity, that happiness is a byproduct of joyfully pursuing sacrificial responsibility. Right, that if we're gonna seek happiness, it's not often going to lead to it, but if we seek the things of God, if we seek this transcendent manhood, then as a result, just in the process, not even as the main goal, but just in the process, there will be a byproduct of happiness. Um, that starts to fill our life. So here's what research says. Um, the things that we, if we seek, um, and if we seek it well, and we seek it sacrificially, we seek this kind of responsibility, um, that that leads to a good life and as a byproduct 
we become happier. The first is close friends. See, one of the epidemics facing young men, or men in general really, is a shrinking social circle. And this has been well-researched and documented in books like Bowling Alone, uh, which actually is a little bit older even, and, and noticed a decline in the early 2000s and late 90s of people joining organizations. See, it used to be men's friends came into their life as a byproduct of being in the same bowling league or on a softball team, or maybe you went on work outings together and you're part of the same political organizations or veterans group. And now there's a rise in men doing things alone or not at all. See, bowling alleys needed to shift because men used to, you know, join bowling leagues and they would spend money together afterwards or during, you know, their bowling league on beer and pizza. And that's how they would make money. But now men often bowl alone and don't spend as much money. And as you get older and have kids, a lot of men, including myself, fall into passivity. We let our wives dictate our social schedule. And there's so much, you know, there's only so much you can push back on this, but it's important to cultivate some healthy male friendships in your life. I think of my friend Ray. He and I were randomly paired up while golfing. Right there, I was golfing alone. Um, and we instantly connected on the course because he's a retired pastor and I'm a current pastor. And we went golfing every week for like, it must have been over a year and a half. This was like around 2020, 2021, you know, when golf courses were one of the only things open during uh, the COVID lockdowns. And uh, even though we went golfing every week, even still, now that I don't live near him anymore, we still talk on the phone every few weeks. And it's been one of the most life-giving friendships I've ever made. I remember he was really sad when I moved from Santa Monica to Orange County because we don't get to see each other as much. So my question for us is some of us, we might have great acquaintances, but do you have close friends? Right? Some people can, these, are these people who you can be authentic with? Are these people that you can genuinely count on? who can count on you. I love the way uh, Robert, uh, I believe you say it, Waldinger, um, that the way he put it, he was the one who directed the Harvard 75-year study. He said, people who are closely connected to family and friends are happier, physically healthier, and live longer lives than people less socially connected. Along with that, he mentioned family. The second thing is a good marriage. Here's the thing, there's a big trend that young people increasingly see marriage as obsolete. And Gracie and I have some non-Christian friends who have been living together for over five years, almost as long as we've been married. And many of them have explicitly told us uh, that because of their wounds from their parents' divorces, they choose just to be together for as long as it's good for them. Right? There's no promises, no vows. And if it's not good anymore, well, then they leave with no strings attached. At least that's what I've generally come to understand from them. And there's some guys out there who think that they can just play the field forever. Or maybe they'll you know, get divorced and have a tough time getting remarried. And as much as men will sometimes complain about their wives, these kinds of studies generally show that married men are happier in the long run. And similar studies show that while having kids is straining, people who have kids are generally happier later in life. This is why a significant portion of this experience is geared towards marriage and kids. You know, I used to hate when my senior pastor, he would do the same marriage and parenting series every year. Uh, but I love the church, or at least I thought I loved the preaching from the church I went to in college. And it was much more emotional. You know, we'd have these really deep experiences. And I just remember I would be undone in worship every week. And there is merit to that. But I cannot remember more than a small handful of sermons from that church and the life application that I got from there. But my old senior pastor, on the other hand, I find myself applying the things he taught on almost a daily basis. I didn't want to get the pregame pep talk, as he would call it. I wanted something that spoke to me right now when I was single. But now I appreciate his discipline in the face of my criticism 
And I'm glad he traded what I wanted then for what I wanted most, which is a thriving marriage and family. There's an assumption, especially in Robert Lewis's books, that most men will get married. But statistically, it's around 60% of non-Christians and up to 70% of Christians who actually get married at some point in life. Even that is the high end of it. There's usually a 10% increase among Christian adults um, who are married compared to non-Christian, right? So, and you know, among those statistics, you're thinking, wait, what about the 60 or the, the 30 to 40% of people you know who aren't married? Well, they're probably just all cohabitating adults, and you know, the kind of the frictional people who aren't married yet. It's only 10% are, are people cohabitating, kind of living as my friends do, as I mentioned. Um, and and so there's a huge minority of people, right? 30 to 40% of men who will never get married. Right? That's a big minority of people who you know, probably hear teaching like this and think, well, what about me? And I want to make sure we have plenty for those who are not married. Yet, the evidence all points in favor of men being happier when they are married long term. And we see clearly in the scriptures. Um, so even if there's criticism, I, I can't help but point us to it because modern social science is confirming what the Bible has said all along. That it is not good for a man to be alone. Uh, the third thing that generally kind of leads to a lot of happiness and a lot of uh, joy in life is generally having some control over life. Now, there's some nuance here. You cannot control everything, of course, but you can be wise and take steps that will reduce unnecessary stress and turmoil and add greater stability and satisfaction to your life. You know, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Something destructive in many men's lives are addictions to alcohol, drugs, gambling, sex, and pornography. Maybe it's not even an addiction, but many men find themselves without personal discipline to trade what they want now for what they want most. Four practical things that you can do to make life more manageable for yourself are this, is staying out of harmful debt, right? I mentioned, you know, the Wall Street bets and whatever, and there's a lot of guys who just blow their money every chance they can. But if you can, you know, get in a program that might help you get a hold of your finances and get your family on a good track, that is worth it. Easily my least popular teaching Anytime I do it is on young people and finances because my goal is that your finances would be like a Toyota, boringly reliable. Because interesting finances are debt, time-consuming investments that usually don't beat the market, and complicated strategies around mortgages, interest rates, and so on. But boring finances are good finances. Your kids will think you didn't do much for them financially when in reality you have put in a ton of work to give them good, boring financial health. The other thing is to pay attention to your health. There's an old saying that wives save lives. We, we tend to tough things out as men. Uh, when we should go to the doctor and take our meds or finish our physical therapy or just generally ask for help in life, I found that you should never cheap out on your health. Spend the money because it's literally your body, uh, your time, and your life that you're spending it on. Uh, a good example is that uh, a few years ago, I developed eczema, which is just itchy skin. I don't, I don't know why my allergies all of a sudden uh, developed an itchy skin. And um, I remember I was too cheap and lazy to do kind of a permanent solution. And I would just kind of have to, you know, go to the doctor once in a while and, and get some creams or some oils or something like that. But finally, I bit the bullet and got allergy uh, injections. Um, and it's some of the best money I have ever spent because literally now every second of my life is less itchy because I went through that process. It took a lot of time. It took some money. I was fortunate to have health insurance, but it is the best time and money I've spent. Another thing we can do just to generally have better uh, self-control and discipline in our life is to avoid long-term disputes because as men, we can be, if we're not careful, we'll get into bitterness and feuds that can be destructive in our lives. And often what we do that's problematic is we bottle it up rather than just confront the issues 
and get it taken care of. Uh, the fourth thing is to seek help to break harmful addictive habits, as I mentioned. This may mean going to a 12-step program or using a software like Covenant Eyes for pornography or having someone else manage your investments. And the fourth thing is a vibrant faith. Now, this is where I'm going to take a little bit of a, a deviation um, from, from the workbook here. And I really just want to talk about um, really more of what does, what does the good life look like? I'm just kind of assuming here that if you're listening to this podcast, and most of the people, our demographics who are coming to Better Man here at Trinity, uh, have a vibrant faith or at least seeking that. A lot of this, this curriculum is kind of designed, at least from my understanding, that you can invite your friend who just wants to become a better man and hopefully introduce them to a vibrant faith. So there's some evangelistic stuff here. But I want to get into what John Tyson talks about of using your dash. He has a great exercise that he did uh, with his kids, or I know at least his son. He took him to a cemetery to teach him an important principle that you are going to die someday. Right? Our culture runs away from the idea of death. We want to live like we're never going to die. We don't want to think too long about what comes after our life. But maybe that's why we would rather shock ourselves instead of being alone with our own thoughts. We talked about, I think it was week one, but you and I are going to die. It is a truth that we cannot escape. And Tyson would point out to his kids uh, who often you know, live with this invincibility complex that for most people, you get a tombstone or a plaque with your name, right? You know, there might be a sentence about you. It says maybe, let's say, you know, beloved husband, father, and friend. And then you get your date of birth on your tombstone. And then it will have the day you died to the right of it. And in between that is a dash, right? That's it. You know, if you, if you look, most people are generally forgotten by the panels uh, or the annals of history, but usually what might survive is this tombstone, right? Is, is this the birth date, the date you died, and a dash. And we are in that dash right now. Tyson's questions to his kids, and my question to us is, what are you going to do with your dash? Because there's very little that might be remembered, and yet our dash matters to God. What are you going to do with the things that might be left unsaid about your life? What is going to be your legacy? What does it look like to have a good dash to use it well? well? I mentioned that happiness is a byproduct of those things we talked about earlier, like close friends, a good marriage, self-control, and a vibrant faith. Happiness is a byproduct of putting God first, of putting others second, and yourself third. That is what a good dash looks like. And to do that, it often helps to go through uh, Richard Rohr's five shifts from boyhood to manhood. He puts it this way. He, he says that for every boy to become a man, you need to realize first that life is hard. Second, you are not important. Third, your life is not about you. Four, you are not in control. And finally, number five, you are going to die. And hopefully we use our dash well. These shifts uh, help us leave behind our childish ways and embrace a mature masculinity. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 10 through 11, put it this way. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I like the way Tyson puts it this way. You know, sometimes the life is hard. You're not important. Sounds a little too harsh. He says, we need to make a shift. We, we need to, uh, you know, children, uh, boys, they prefer ease. They prefer uh, to go the easy way in life. But as men, we shift, we put boyhood of easiness behind us. We go from ease to difficulty. Uh, I, I think of the, the John F. Kennedy quote who said, we are not doing these things because they are easy. We are doing them because they are hard. I believe he was talking about the space race. 
We do things because they are hard. That is what discipline looks like. And then number two is that boys often care about themselves, but men care about others, right? I talked about putting God first, others second, and ourselves third. Third thing is that we are part of the story, right? It's not to say that you have no value and that you're, you're not important, but it's that you are part of the story. You are not the whole story. You're not the main character. And the sooner we do that, the better that we can put others before ourselves and God before us uh, because it is ultimately his story. Number four is we shift from control to surrender, right? That part of self-control is that we ultimately need to surrender those things to God so that he will help us develop self-control. But often we have an over-control of our life. So we go from control, from being the master of our fate, the captain of our soul, to surrendering it and realizing that God is in control. And finally, is that we shift from the temporary to the eternal. We recognize that someday we are going to die. There's going to be a tombstone. And we want to use our dash well so that it echoes well into eternity. Ultimately, this is what will shift us, hopefully from the world's hollow picture of the good life to God's vibrant and abundant life that he provides.